Where do I find you? Where are you? Uh, currently, I'm in Glasgow, just north of Glasgow. Um, I live in a, a place called Bishop Briggs. Bishop Briggs. I've definitely yeah, heard of Bishop fun. Briggs. Is it gentrified yes. these days? To a degree. <laughs> <laughs> to a degree. But um, no, it's, it's, it's strange. It's actually a nice, bright, sunny day which we're not totally accustomed to here, so we'll take it. So if you can hear a fan in the background, just let me know, because I've got some kind of rudimentary air conditioning on in here, so if that's creating background noise, just let me know and I can switch it off. Is, in Scotland, isn't air conditioning just like child labour? You get a child to blow yeah. in your face. I've, I lived in Edinburgh for five years. I can count oh, about yeah. six sunny days in five years. Uh, yeah, yeah, that sounds familiar. Edinburgh's a lovely city. I actually prefer it to Glasgow. There's just a bit more to do, a bit more history. And, yeah. You know, I'm, I grew up in the, the 80s, so I'm of the Ghostbusters generation. So when you go to Edinburgh, it's everything's haunted, whereas in Glasgow, nothing is. And it's just very... Glasgow's where you work, Edinburgh's where you live, I think. So That's very yeah, true. And the train, the train between the two is only 45 minutes. And then you've got Bathgate, which has had a resurgence yeah. because one of Britain's biggest pop stars is from Bathgate. Who's that? Lewis Capaldi. He's not, is he? Yeah, he makes a big deal of it growing up in Bathgate. I had no idea. I've only heard a couple of his songs, to be fair. It's not really my kind of music, that whole, you know, I love the way you make the bed in the morning and it's really nice and uh, please don't leave me, that kind of music's not my scene. Don't give Ed Sheeran any ideas. I don't think he's written, I love how you make the bed, but I bet he will. Oh, it's inevitable. He's very much... um, I think he wets the bed before he writes his music, but ah, that's just my opinion. That is, well, you and Alan McGee. <laughs> Michael McEwen is here to talk about uh, Ghosts of Cathkin Park, which is a book all about Third Lanark FC, which is a club that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, we're going to decide if it was murder or manslaughter today, and this is part of Fitbar Week. Uh, Scottish football is different from English football, and I would like a Scotsman to tell me why. Oh my goodness, there's a great question. How is it different? It's funny, there are a lot of similarities which in their own way create the differences. So, for example, in England you have how many leagues? Say four top divisions and I think was it 20 teams each. In Scotland we have the same four top divisions but 10 teams each. But that would imply then that with a population of 60 million Scotland should, that England has, that Scotland should have a population of 30, but we don't have a population of five. So there has been this feeling that's festered for many, many years, if not decades, that Scottish football has too many clubs, too many teams for people to get behind. And <laughs> what you find is that rather than get behind those clubs, the majority of people have got behind two, Rangers and Celtic. And that's left a huge drain for all of these other clubs to try and fill out a fan base. But they have, and those fan bases are, while small, very dedicated, very fervent, uh, very loyal, and extremely partisan. So that's one of the, the sort of, I don't know if it's a difference to England so much, but we have these community clubs, if you like, rather than these franchises as the top end of England is heading towards. It's almost like the Premier League in England and to a similar degree the Championship are becoming almost NFL franchises in their own right with the amount of money and the the, the way the clubs are run mm. and structured and the business between them. Well, Tottenham, That's not like Scotland. Tottenham play in an NFL stadium. That It's not a well, soccer yeah. stadium, it's a gridiron <laughs> stadium in Arsenal. Uh, it's, it's franchises and the more yeah. I grow older and more disillusioned with not just football but the world entirely, 
Um, this will go out in October, so God knows what the world's going to look like then. Um, oh my God. But, yeah, Scotland, big place in my heart. I lived there for five years, so I can claim citizenship if I do a test. And the test is, what would the Scottish citizenship test be? In England, you have a life in the UK test if you want a, a visa to live here. If you're in Scotland, in all seriousness, because I hear that there's nationalism up in Scotland. We don't hear much about it. <laughs> what would the quest- if you could ask one question of someone wanting to become Scottish, what would it be? My word, I genuinely don't know. I think for most people in Scotland, it would come down to, would you stand your, your round at a bar? Good. You know, would would you get the drinks in? And <laughs> I'd like to think most people would. Because, let's face it, that's just common decency, isn't it? Correct. We're, we're all brought up to be correct and politeful. Yeah, I think I think that might well be it. And another question would be, I suppose, what's the best time of year to go haggis hunting? And if you do know that the best time of year to go haggis hunting is, in fact, September, when they're wild, then that's uh, that's probably the best, best answer that somebody could give. I never knew that. Yeah, I studied in Edinburgh. I lived there. I've spent some wonderful days in Glasgow. I was up there a couple of years ago. I went to Cumbrae. Uh, There's the Milkport Festival on Cumbrae. I went to the 25th anniversary. (laughs) Scotland's magnificent. I've spoken to Andy Bolland, David F. Ross. I'm sure I'll get Stuart Cosgrove on for, I don't know, eight hours of chatter. (laughs) Do you listen to Off the Ball? Stupid question. I I do religiously like most football fans in Scotland that's become an essential part of the, the fabric of, of our upbringings and of our, our now um, season-to-season existences. It's a fantastic show. It's, you know, it's, it's good as well because it's not just all out trying to be funny all the time. You know, they, they have a perfect blend of content. So, yeah, it's, it's essential. And in this day and age with digital radio, anybody can tune in. So I implore anybody to, to do so. You may need uh, you may need to employ Google Translate to get through some parts of it. I think you need an interpreter. Well There's a show that mm-hmm, I'm listening to yeah. on Radio Four this afternoon about interpreters. I think in Scotland it's Urdu to English, but yeah, I remember my experience was Freshers' Week at Edinburgh. I met a guy called Alastair Mackenzie from Stirling, and. I got away with two pardons, and on the third he said, can you understand what I'm seeing? I said, look, I can barely understand Glasgow. Sterling is like A-level, <laughs> degree-level accent. And then, of course, I've been to that. I haven't been to the Highlands, but I know people from there. It's just the most amazing country. Are you sick of the tourists yet? Oh, God, no, we're missing them. I mean, the, the past 18 months, we've, we've hardly had any tourists. And, you know, Scotland is a, a country that obviously a large part of the economy is tourism-dependent. And in my day job, I work in the golf industry and, you know, that's that's crucial as well to get the American market over and the European market, mm-hmm. any market really, to come to the home of golf. So, yeah, you know, we're, we're a friendly place. We, we, you know, the more the merrier. We just, uh, we always like to, to see people here. So it has been strange. It's been quiet across the country. I think most people have felt it for the past year or so. So, yeah, as things start to open up and people start to come back, then we welcome one, we welcome all. Yeah, whiskey, Nessie and Golfy. They're the three big oh. tourist haunts in Scotland. You're the assistant editor. As far as I can tell, the assistant editor of Bunkered. That's correct. Yes, I yeah. am indeed. Have you been watching off the Golf Channel this year or have you been able to cover championships in person this year? 
the only championship I've been to this year has been the Open Championship at Royal St George's last month. So I drove down to Sandwich um, in the, the very southeast corner of England. Mm-hmm. So it's a good eight hours from Glasgow. That's the only one that I've been to. It was really nice to be back to, to doing the, the job that I know and love. It's, I think the last event prior to that that I went to would have been the Solheim Cup at Glen Eagles in 2019, wow. which is just 45 minutes up the road. So, yeah, you're, you're talking almost two years between tournaments, and it's been strange. You know, Zoom's great, Teams is interesting, um, Google Hangout, all these sorts of things, and a lot of great provisions have been made, and people have come up with innovative new ways of doing media and keeping everyone communicating, but... You know, when it comes down to it, there's nothing quite like being there and being part of the action, you know, even from outside the ropes. It's it's a special feeling. It's, it's a, an adrenaline buzz that you can't get from sitting in a home office. Uh, the closest I got to was uh, Dad and I went to St Andrews in 2007. And Melissa Reed was, I think she won the Girls' Open. That, not the yeah. Women's Open, the Girls' Open. So I've always kept an eye on what Mel, Melissa, has been doing and she's doing... Pretty well. I think she's Solheim Cup. Very well, yeah. Yep. Yeah, she got a pick earlier this week. Oh, Mazeltov. Oh, I didn't know. And where is the Solheim this year, here or there? It's over there. Funnily enough, it's in Inverness, Ohio. So we're oh. claiming that as a home match as well with our, our Scottish captain. So if, if we're looking for omens, and my God, we always do, then the fact it's taking place at Inverness Golf Club is definitely, it has to be a good omen. That's good. Yeah, this show doesn't go out until, I think, the end of October. So... Golf season, well, will it have gone to race People to Dubai know, yeah. by then? Not quite. That's November, I think. Okay. So, yeah, assuming everything still goes as scheduled, you know, there's been a lot of tournaments cancelled and, and so on and so forth on the European Tour this year. But assuming everything goes as it's meant to and, you know, follows the schedule properly, I think the race to Dubai finishes in November or perhaps December. So, yeah, we'll know by the time this goes out whether or not uh, Katrina Martin and her team have defended the Solheim Cup successfully or not, and fingers crossed they do. It's, it's always nice to beat the Americans, really, isn't it? Indeed. The website is bunkered.co.uk. Uh, 25 years this year. That's right, yeah. Yeah, 25 years old. I've been there for ooh, 17, 18 of them. I was fresh out of university. Uh, you know, I, I didn't actually stay on to complete my degree because I knew I wanted to be a sports writer and I was kind of not sure if the degree that I was doing was the right one. And I'd, in the meantime, been getting as much practical experience as a sports writer as I could. And I saw the, the vacancy with a junior staff writer as it was at the time. I applied for it and fortunately got it. And yeah, it's funny when you're a young guy starting out, you have big dreams of becoming, you know, the next... McIlvanny or you know Spears or Tom English these guys you, you, you've read all your days and look up to so I'm thinking you know two years here and then I'll move on to the next big thing but yeah as I say 17-18 years on and it's, it's better than ever so I, I have absolutely no complaints whatsoever that's brilliant and of course anyone can read anything anywhere all the time so being a yeah. and it's in print as well I will try and get the new issue who's on the cover of the latest issue oh, on, the, on the cover of this issue is well, there's a question. Victor Hovland, Ryder Cup rookie. So, spoke to Victor at Royal St George's last month, uh, or I should say in July when I was there. And, um, yeah, that's his cover debut for us. Very exciting young Norwegian talent. Well, I've got, I know zero about him. I'm sure my Uncle Peter, <laughs> who is a religious better on golf tournaments, <laughs> uh, will love it. What did you play off, or do you play off? So, I do play. It's an occupational hazard. It's a, it's a funny thing because, you know, 
football writers, I know that a lot of them, they play five-a-sides and seven-a-sides and so on, and people who cover cycling do cycle a bit, but when it comes to golf, I think that whilst it's not essential, you, you need to at least play a little bit to understand the, the nuances and the intricacies that go on on tour. I don't currently have a handicap because I've only just joined a, a new golf club earlier this year. I took about five years out when uh, my little girl was born. Oh. So now that she's close to four, um, I decided, right, okay, it's time to get back into it. I need to start playing again. So on a good day for low teens, on a bad day, high teens, something like that. Pretty so good. somewhere in between. One a yeah, hole, one a hole is really good. If I, I, I could kind of do three shots every two holes. <laughs> which is which is my stuff but, but my dad's been single figures my brother's single figures Oof. um that's the dream i mean that i think for anyone who's not single figures that's always going to be the goal and then for people who are single figures the goal starts to get a little bit i don't know harder to define yeah. you know maybe if you're just single figures like i need to get to five and then it gets harder and harder and harder the closer you get to scratch so yeah, I'm, I'm very much content to see what my first handicap is when I put some cards in. And then, yeah, I, I know it won't be singles, but then that's going to be the goal for next year is to try and get it as close to there as I can. Yeah, start with some smaller courses and then go on. Uh, yeah. I've, I've played around the links at, uh, well, Sandy Lodge was the closest golf club. Hartsbourne, which is a Jewish oh, golf yeah. club, um, which, um, they're, as you may know, I don't know if you've covered the Jewish golf tournament, the Glancy, but Hartsbourne routinely um, murder everyone apart from Coombe Hill Golf Club where my dad was captain and there was a very tall oh. Dutchman who was a footballer who wanted to pl- to join the local golf club and that is why my dad knowing that Edwin van der Sar would take a place away from a regular weekend player turned down van der Sar. Oh my goodness I mean I can't imagine there would be many people in any walk of life who would say no to having Edwin van der Sar on their team. I know Sir Alex Ferguson couldn't resist. So, mm-hmm. yeah, fair play to your dad. It's a, I hope dad's all right with me telling that story. Yes, Michael McEwen, your new book, Ghosts of Cathkin Park, looks at third Lanark. And don't worry, we will talk about that in the second half. Although I imagine you're doing quite a few interviews, both TV and radio. You might even be on Off the Ball. You never know. You never know, but yeah, it's, it's great. There's been a lot of early interest in the book, which is fantastic. It's been a labour of love that I've worked on for for some time. Uh, I mentioned my daughter being born there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I mentioned my daughter being born. It was you know, probably the best time to do it. You know, when she's just a little kid. You know, she was a baby, and she was, you know, yeah, she was up a few hours during the night. But by and large, she slept pretty well, so that afforded me the chance to just nip into the study and get the head down and, and crack on with this project that I've been fascinated by for years. So, yeah, as I say, a real labour of love, but I've enjoyed absolutely every minute. And now's the exciting part when it's about to come out and, and people can see it and hopefully enjoy it for themselves. The question I always like to ask is, a man writes a book, a woman delivers the man's child. Does the man ever compare notes with the woman who has to gestate this uh, embryo? and fetus for nine months and you gestating this well it is a murder i think murder in kathkin park i think i don't know if i were your editor uh and i'm not uh the book is out on berlin by the way which is one of the best publishers in the uk because they're based near where i used to live uh, in edinburgh but i would have taken the fact that William McIlvanny, whose new book has been co-written by Ian Rankin, Scotland and horror and mystery and murder. This is murder. Yes, I, I suppose it is. I mean, 
you know, I'll, I'll leave it to people to draw their own conclusions um, in, in terms of whether they, they think that the person responsible is indeed the sole person responsible, if it was a premeditated act of vengeance or whatever it might have been, if it was just shoddy businessmanship. Yeah, I'm, I'm quite happy for people to draw their own conclusions because that's something I, I suppose like all journalists, you, you set out in pursuit of the truth when you have this idea for a story that you want to, to tell. And it was from at that point that I started to look at it, you know, I wanted to know what had happened to Third Lanark. I've only lived in Glasgow since the mid-90s. I moved here when I was 12. And obviously, at that age, like every young Scottish kid, you're, you're football daft. And I, was, I wasn't I was like my friends who watched Match of the Day and then went outside the next day and tried to recreate the goals that they'd seen. I would watch Match of the Day and then write match reports on it. You know, I was, I was very geared towards telling stories and, you know, especially relaying sporting events, trying to find the words to describe them to an audience. And, yeah, you know, I, I was fascinated by the history of the game in, in Scotland, and I was always aware of Third Lanark. You know, I knew that there was this club that had existed that had been relatively successful. Uh, to this day, they're one of only four teams to have beaten both Rangers and Celtic in a Scottish Cup final, which is no mean feat wow. when you consider the financial clout of both those teams and People think that's a recent thing as well. I mean, Ranger and Celtic were hugely, hugely powerful going back decades. But, yeah, I was, I was interested in that. That interest kind of crystallised when I visited Catkin Park. The ground is still largely there. It's just it's completely overgrown. Trees have grown up through the, through the concrete stands. But the metal crush barriers are all largely still in place. Some of them have been restored. The terraces, you know, are still there. You can stand and look at the football pitch at any time because it's a public park and the funny thing is it is still a football pitch it's, it's maintained as that by Glasgow City Council and so it was going there and getting a feel for the place and it's, it's I suppose like any other place where there's stories in a, a past you know like if you visited any old building for example you walk in and you can feel or sense an atmosphere and that might be a a placebo effect, I don't know, because you think, well, because it's old, it must be haunted. Or maybe it's a real thing, maybe it's just a real subconscious feeling. But I got that at Katkin. You know, standing on the terraces, you could feel it. There's a, there's an energy that's still there. Um, I'm, I'm not a religious person. I'm semi-spiritual. But, you know, you, you stand there and you can't help but think of the people who stood there before you, what they saw, the, the crunching tackles, the noise that this tightly packed crowd would have made, and this is a crowd in the days before seats, so imagine how hemmed in they would have been, all, you know, shoulder to front everywhere, you know, it's it's just a spectral, eerie place. It was from then that I decided, look, I, I want to know the truth, I want to know what's happened to this club, and so, yeah, I think that for most journalists, that's where any story starts, it's a pursuit of the truth, yes. and when I discovered that there was a, I don't want to say a shady character, but you know, when there was a a no, he's dead. Questionable... Well, yes, exactly. I, cho- I try not to speak ill of them, but okay. there was a, a man of questionable, questionable character who took over the, the majority of the shares of the club. And, um, and what we're going to do, because sometimes whenever there's a villain that props up yeah. in the football library, we try never to mention him by name. So we oh. can call him Voldemort or the man who must not be named or the artist <laughs> formerly known as Prince. <laughs> yes, well... Let's call him Mr. H, shall we? 
Mr. Um, H, I'll, I'll write that down and ring it. Yeah, Mr. H, which whom we'll talk about in the, the second half. I just wanted to read this from your introduction. Trees have grown through what's left of the stands. Moss and muck cover the concrete steps like propagated gift wrap. Vines and weeds have coiled around the metal crush barriers, constricting them as they continue to stand in defiant guard over an empty pasture of a pitch. A field of dreams reduced to nothing more than a meadow of memories. Literature. Literature. So, yeah. so you must have had fun writing this book, just crafting the oh, sentences. You're in the tradition of Hugh McIlvanny, as you mentioned. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, writing's been in my family. My, my dad, uh, uh, he, he was originally part of a folk club movement. Um, he wrote the Whaley Boot song for Billy Connolly. Him and Billy go back decades and decades and decades. So... If it wasn't for your wellies, where would you be? You'd be in a hospital or infirmary Cos you would have a dose of the flu or even pleurisy If you didn't have your feet in your wellies That's a chorus. You know, at that time in the west part of Scotland, uh, the west coast of Scotland, you obviously had a very big... Uh, shipbuilding community, a blue collar community, and it was very much us against them, you know, the, the blue collars versus the government, and Dad was very much of that scene. So he was forever writing poetry because, you know, that was uh, a, a very popular expression at that time, a, a way to, to, I suppose, stick it to the man without, you know, having the, the capacity to do much more. That was how people chose to protest was peaceful poetry and all these kinds of things. So, yeah, writing's always been in the blood. I've always enjoyed words. I've always enjoyed, you know, the English language. I enjoyed learning other languages as well when I was at school. I wasn't a science kid by any means. Didn't like chemistry, didn't like physics, and absolutely despised biology. But give me words to play with, and uh, I absolutely, yeah. that, that's when I'm at my happiest. No, that's good. I was exactly the same. And there's this sentence here. It's haunting, all right. A place once full of passion and glory and fight and fury now withered and weathered and worn. That is poetic. That's brilliant. Uh, and just to, to announce that the most um, redundant book of the year is Billy Connolly's autobiography. We know. <laughs> yes. We know. Why? Why does this book exist? Well, there's been a few of them, haven't there? Um, Pamela's book is phenomenal. And I think it should have just been left at that. Um, you know, I, I feel sorry when I, for Billy when I see him now. You know, he's retired as much as he possibly can from public life, but people seem determined to, to celebrate him and to, to feel him out for, for various... Uh, uh, eulogies. Yeah. And they've got the mural. Yeah, How close to the mural do you live? Uh, not that far away. I've, I've only seen it a couple of times, but it is beautiful. It's, mm-hmm. You know, there, there is... In, in time and in centuries to come, I think people will look back at Billy and the influence he's had on... Scottish culture and I think indeed British culture in, in much the same way as people revel Shakespeare. Billy changed the way that we communicate and the way that we the way that we laugh. Yeah, he probably did. You know, he was a complete bridge between uh, a more slapstick style of comedy and he, a sort of gentrified style of comedy. He, he made it accessible to everybody. And yeah, I've I've spent uh, as you can imagine, him being a friend of my dad's, I've spent a lot of time in his company, and he's just a a wonderful, wonderful man. He's, he's a unique guy and, I should add, an, an exceptional musician. Doesn't get half the credit he deserves. He's a wonderful banjo player. But, uh, yeah, he's, he's he's unique. He's the big yun. I didn't know that yin actually meant one until I read yes. his book of tall stories. <laughs> the big yun means the big one. <laughs> that's, 
correct. Yeah, yeah it's funny. It's, I actually don't think of Yin as being a particularly Glaswegian expression. I'm not even sure it it depicts him properly. Yin, I would think more of as the borders. Oh. You know, you, you hear Yin Twa Thra. You know, from from people who live down in the borders and sort of in Fries. And I, I I can't say I've ever heard a Glaswegian use the word Yin. How fascinating! I didn't know. Do you, have you played golf with Billy? I have not. No. Um, you know, I, I've not seen him now for a number of years. Um, really, since his diagnosis. Last time I saw him would have been when he toured uh, in Glasgow. Oh, when would that be? 10, 10 odd years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he does play golf. I, I don't think he ever really liked it that much. He's a huge football fan, though a regular at Parkhead where he sees his beloved Celtic, but I don't hold that against him. He's allowed. And that's the great thing about... Well, I I wanted to finish the first half on Billy, but I have to ask you this question. There's this abuse from Rangers fans of the Celtic player who's of East Asian extraction, and Rangers fans have banned their fans from going to see the old firm derby. That sets a horrific precedent. No one's going to see any Rangers Celtic games if they ban people for... Abuse. What about all the sectarian stuff? Are they saying that East Asian abuse is marginally worse than sectarian abuse, or do they just realise we can't do anything about sectarian abuse because it is literally in the blood? It's a really tough one. I mean, you know, I, I, it embarrasses me when I go. I mean, I, I'm a Rangers fan. You know, I've, I've gone to Rangers Congratulations. for years and years. And yeah, well, yes, 55 wonderful scenes, and you know, it's, it's a strange thing because you you want to be proud of your football club and. All my friends are Celtic fans. Most of my colleagues are Celtic fans, and they'll tell you the same thing. You know, they want to be proud of their club, but there is always an element that makes you feel nothing but shame and makes you want to distance yourself. I was at uh, the Rangers game just uh, a couple of weeks ago, and as this goes out a couple of months ago, against Alash Kerch from Armenia, and look, 99% of the crowd, absolutely superb. There's 1% that stands up and shouts something ridiculous or... You know, on another given day, it might be 10%. But what you hear is this broad brush of Rangers fans or this or Celtic fans or that, and it's not the case. It's <laughs> The problem is that society is riddled with all kinds of behaviours that, frankly, we just need to get rid of. You know, there is absolutely no room in society or in any walk of life for somebody being racist or discriminatory, whether that's to somebody of East Asian descent or somebody based on their religion. It's just, it's shameful. It's absolutely inexplicable. And it has to be learned. You know, no one's born a racist. No one's born sectarian. So that gives me hope that it's not going to be in my lifetime they're going to see this, but if something can be learned, then we can change the curriculum. You know, and... People want to see sectarianism and racism eradicated right now. It's not going to happen right now. It's rife. It's 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 intrinsic. But if we all start to take more of a, a stand and take a bit of collective responsibility as opposed to the what about today, you know, that that continues, then perhaps we can change the way that people talk about these things and the racists and the discriminatory people of the world will become more and more marginalised to the point that. Hopefully we don't hear them. They will always be there, but hopefully we can drown them out. That's my hope. But yeah. Maybe it's the idealist in me talking. Amen to that. And uh, if you want more of that kind of thing, The Uncomfortable Truth About Racism by the greatest ever Watford player, John Barnes, is out as this goes oh, out. Oh, John Barnes, what a player. And, you know, um, he experienced it in Glasgow himself when he was Celtic manager for a brief time. You know, he was uh, in much the same way as Stephen Gerrard. He was a marquee signing for the league. 
in his own right. And I, you know what? People people remember the bad results. And as a Rangers fan, I'm probably I should be predisposed to to laugh at the experience that he had and to to not feel sympathy. But I do. I think that given more time, John Barnes would have been a fantastic manager. And unfortunately, just on based on the experience he had in. Certainly in Glasgow, I don't think he's had the opportunities that should have come his way. A lot of his ideas were really, really interesting. So, yeah, that's a case of what might have been, really, I think. Michael okay. McEwen, and uh, for those of you watching Black and White, it's M-C-E-W-A-N. Do you have the McEwen tartan? I do, I do. There's actually a number of them. I've got the, the ancient McEwen, just because I prefer it a bit more. The, yeah. the modern, more traditional McEwen is navy with bits of green and red through it and it just looks like most other dark tartans but the one I've got is uh, a little bit more daring so yeah I'm uh, very proud of the the McEwen roots such as they are we didn't really do anything as a, as a clan you know we didn't achieve anything our clan crest is a tree stump which isn't hard it's hardly the stuff of great heraldic dreams I mean where's the dragon where's the the minotaur or whatever it might be mm. but no we have a tree stump and our clan motto is Riveresco, which translates as we shall rise again, yeah. which is amazing because I don't think any McEwen was aware we'd risen in the first place. But uh, yeah, you know, dubious past aside, very proud, very proud of my uh, ancestry. No, that was one thing I got from living in Scotland for five years with the Burn Suppers and the Keeleys. Mm. And I've a good friend, uh, Debbie, whose family are Scottish. And so she, whenever she talks to her mum, it's brilliant. And whenever she talks to me, it's brilliant. It's, a, it's, a, yes. it's, it's dual languages. <laughs> and it's, it's a one, one of the best places on earth. Uh, no wonder the Romans couldn't go further than the wall. Um, <laughs> you know, I love it. And, you know, I, I think that's the thing about Scots is that we are quite fiercely patriotic. Uh, you know, I just wish that that patriotism manifested itself slightly differently and we didn't talk down our country you know we're i don't know if it's a an in the blood thing where we are quite modest and we don't like to scream and shout from the rooftops about what we have to offer but you know we'll, we'll find a negative in any positive you know yeah. oh, it's sunny today yes but it's raining tomorrow that sort of mentality um you know say what you like about americans but you've never heard an american talk down their country and i kind of wish that we were a bit more like that um, but then again, there's, <laughs> there are a lot of things wrong with America too, so that's a different story. Indeed, and again, as I said in the first off, we're talking on August 25th. God knows what the state of the world, because Afghanistan is more than just an American issue. It concerns everyone, yeah. Russia, China. Ghosts of Kathkin Park uh, has come out. It came out in September. We're talking before the release. By the time this goes out in Fitbar week, uh, there will be more known about it. And the story of Third Lanark, it's actually your second book, Profits to Great Ormond Street Hospital, uh, which was a book about the London Marathon called Running the Smoke, great title, came out in 2016, and it's 26 recollections, I guess your intro is the point two, uh, of the London Marathon. Yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, again, you know, that it's, it's one of those things that I was, I won't lie, I was looking for a, a way to get into to writing books, you know, I'm, I'm like most other writers of the, um, I'm now largely in the digital realm of, of media, but prior to that, you know, you're, you're dealing with word counts and finite space in magazines and newspapers, and you always want to say more, and long form is never long enough. So I, I was really fascinated by the, the idea of writing a book. I've got a huge collection of sports books, and I wanted to add one of my own to it. And 
yeah, the London Marathon, I didn't, I don't, I don't have a particularly sporty family. I didn't have a big sporty background. But one thing that was always on in the TV when I was growing up was the London Marathon. You know, my mum always used to have it on in the background every you know, third, second or third Sunday in April. And I was fascinated by it from an early age. And yeah, as I got older and I got into running myself, I, I made that the big goal. I want to run the London Marathon. And it was when I ran it for the first time in 2014, you're standing around the start line and you're all huddled together in Greenwich and uh, or Greenwich Park, I think it is. Yeah. It might actually be Greenwich. And um, yeah, it occurred to me, you know, I, I was there to satisfy a lifetime ambition. You know, I, I was doing something that I'd always wanted to do. And then I realised, well, everybody else around me is in the same boat. And I wondered, looking at the backs of people's shirts and all that sort of thing, you know, why are they running? What's their reason? And that was really where the idea formed. So I went out and I spoke to 26 different people. And I wanted to get a broad cross-section, so I spoke to former winners of the event itself, likes of Liz McCulgan and Charlie Spedding, oh, uh, Dick Bridgley. Yeah, phenomenal people. Um, great to get the elite insight but i didn't want it to just be that obviously celebrities are a big part of london marathon as well um you know to see these high achievers and people that you feel familiar with brought down to your level running and struggling like everyone else is, is a big part of the appeal i think of the race so spoke to steve redgrave neil mcandrew people along those lines and the big part was the fun runners i guess people who are not famous and not elite you know the the mass runners and yes, I, again, to try and tell uh, as many different stories from within that part of the, the race as I could. So you've got a guy in there who survived the Rwandan genocide as a child, um, escaped to London, then became homeless. It was through a running charity that he managed to get rehoused and took up running and ran the marathon. I spoke to people who lost loved ones to cancer, cancer survivors. Then there's the lighter elements like a... Uh, uh, a lovely old guy who has run every single edition of the London Marathon to date. We've got a guy who did keepy-uppies the entire 26.2 miles. Yeah, and then I finished it off by speaking to a survivor of the 7-7 bombings who was actually on the in the same carriage, train carriage, oh, as, the, the as the attacker when the bomb went off. Yeah. yeah, which was tough to hear, but I was determined I was going to include it and have it as the last chapter as a sort of standalone totem i guess of resilience and everything that london and britain is about you know this stiff upper lip's not the right word but you know it's that idea that you can come at us but you're never going to defeat us because the sum of us is greater than some of you so that was important to me to finish the book like that but yes yeah that was 2016 now i can't mm -hmm. believe it's uh, five years five since years. it came out um, October 3rd is slash was the London Marathon. It is the best day of the year. I can't tell you yes. the endorphin high I was on. I went on to a shift at work in 2019. I stood outside uh, Fraser Place in Wapping, which is where uh, my partner at the time in 2017 actually lived there. So I said, let's watch the marathon today. And I said, well, I'll just go up and watch the kind of woman in the wheelchair on the telly and then come down when people are passing through. Uh, my brother ran it in 2018. He cramped up after about 23 and uh, limped to the finish line, and he does halves now. But I saw James Cracknell, um, uh, Bertie, uh, he, he's an actor, um, not Eddie Marzan. Um, Nell McAndrew, I think we saw. 
and it's uh, it was the Heads Together Marathon 2018. So oh, that... yeah. yeah. I, I, I ran that one. No, no, I ran in 2017, I think it was. Or was it 18? No, no, it definitely was. It was, it was the year after the book came out. 2017, um, so right I must now. have seen you. Yeah. My friend Paul was running, and I, I had some Jaffa cakes. I said, do you want some Jaffa cakes? I said, no, no, don't worry about it. And he was, yeah, <laughs> very tall, very fit. And I, again, envious of everyone who does the marathon because it's ludicrous, but they are raising money for some of the best causes. Profits of running the smoke go to Great Ormond Street Hospital, um, which must have hit home because you had the kids just afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it did. You know, we had a difficult journey to having our wee girl. Uh, we had uh, three miscarriages around about the time that I was writing Running the Smoke. So it was partly because of that that I, I wanted to, to contribute the royalties to uh, Great Ormond Street. Anyone getting ill at any time is heartbreaking. And, you know, it's it's an unfortunate truth and it's a truth of life that none of us can avoid is that we're not going to be here forever, so something's going to go wrong at some point. Um, but when it happens to, to kids, it's just absolutely heartbreaking. You know, I can't look at bad adverts on, on the TV. It just I should. you know, I, I shouldn't turn a blind eye, but I, I, it's just too hard to, to watch. So, yeah, you know, I wanted to support a, a children's charity. I also wanted to give something back to London for, for very obvious reasons. And, you know, people said to me, why aren't you keeping the royalties and... You know, well, the London Marathon is the single biggest charitable event in the UK, so mm. why shouldn't a book about it be that? And besides, these weren't my stories. You know, I was I was very much second fiddle in that book. I was simply speaking to people, getting their story, writing it up, and then sharing it. There was very little in the way of effort. I, I say that, I mean, obviously it, it was, there was work involved, clearly, but there was nothing in the way of imaginative effort on my part to make it happen. I just had to listen to what they had to say and and ghostwrite it effectively. Yeah. So the idea of keeping the, the royalties, given everything that was going on in life at the time, it just didn't feel right. So, yeah, they, I think the next royalties check's due any week now, and as soon as it comes in, it gets uh, donated straight to Great Ormond Street. Tremendous. Uh, the book is Running the Smoke, and uh, I must mention, because I walked past the old site, Sick Kids, the Royal Sick Children's Hospital in Edinburgh, has got oh, a yeah. new campus. It looks phenomenal. Yeah, it really does, and it's somewhere in Glasgow as well. We we had a children's hospital in a part of the city called, called York Hill. It's now been relocated to our new Queen Elizabeth Hospital, is it, I think, on, mm. the, on the south side, very near Ibrox, and... You know, again, yeah, I, I've seen it only briefly. My, my, my little girl had bad ear infections when she was uh, just a newborn, so they got checked out and we had to go along to that part of the hospital. Fortunately, everything's fine. But you see it, and it's a heartbreaking place, but my God, the people who work there do everything they can to make it as as bearable as possible. You know, they're, they're all smiling. They're, all the pictures on the walls, the colours on the walls, they are there special salt of the earth people who work in pediatrics yeah my 